Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. So thank you very much, Father Scalia, and welcome back to the Institute. Thank you, Sabatino. Uh, it's good to be back. For this evening's talk, basically, it's a long intro to all of us singing. So you have the, the, uh, the music sheet, right? You should have that on your table. Uh, we're going to save that for the end. Uh, the other sheet there is the Pange Lingua uh, with the Latin on one side. Get comfortable with it because we're going to um, be going through the Latin. And then a literal, not poetic, translation uh, on the right uh, to help us make sense of this beautiful hymn. And so what we're examining this evening is a hymn of great beauty and great theological depth and accuracy. Beauty and doctrine don't, in the popular mind, usually go together. Uh, the modern mind doesn't expect to find truth in beauty or beauty in truth. In fact, we, we flee from truth, think, think it's ugly and imposing, and we reduce uh, beauty to just sentimentality. In the Catholic mind and heart, these two things go together. And this hymn is a superb example of that, how truth and beauty uh, not only can, uh, but must go together. Uh, in, e in order for each one to be what it is, they both must be together. Truth without beauty becomes sterile, cold, and brutal. And beauty without truth becomes sentimentality, propaganda, pornography. We have to have both these together. Or another way of putting it is, each one is insufficient in its, uh, on its own. It must have the other. Uh, theology must have poetry, song, in order to give expression to what is ultimately mystery. And uh, beauty, poetry, and song must have that theological richness, depth, and accuracy in order for it really to be, uh, to be beautiful instead of just sentimental. And they both proceed from the same thing, which is wonder. Nascantur in admiratione, uh, Aristotle said, but probably in Greek. Um, and may they be born in wonder. Wonder is the beginning of all philosophy and also theology, by extension. Uh, it, it is the awareness of the mystery, and, uh, and, and that prompts thought and reflection on that mystery. Wonder is also the beginning of, of poetry, of songs, of hymns, uh, to give expression to something in, in, in words and in song which just can't be expressed by prose. 
And so these things appeal to both the mind and the heart. Theology, obviously, appealing to the mind. Doctrine, corresponding to the mind, and poetry to the heart. Um, and so with this hymn, uh, Dom Guéranger of the, the, the famous abbot of Salem gives, I was kind of disappointed how little he's written on this, uh, but he says of this hymn, it gives us the whole doctrine of the Eucharist in a sublime and concise wording. Boom, there it is, the whole doctrine of the Eucharist, which is probably a couple semesters in the seminary. Um, we've got till, I don't know, what, 8, 8.15? Okay. So the author of the hymn, of course, is St. Thomas Aquinas himself, and uh, whom most people, if they know of him at all, they know him to be a great philosopher and theologian, right? But of course, he's also a great poet. Uh, and this just being one example of, of his uh, poetry. Um, and he's not the only figure in the church's history in, in which we find this union of a great theological, doctrinal mind combined with uh, a great artistic talent. I think uh, St. Augustine would qualify as well. Uh, he and St. Ambrose are credited for having composed the Te Deum, a beautiful hymn. And just, just so many of, of Augustine's writings, his prose is really lyrical uh, in many places. Uh, I would say uh, closer to our own time, blessed John Henry Newman, uh, who has tons of poetry and of course, uh, theology, philosophy as well. And we're blessed in our own time to have the example of John Paul, uh, St. John Paul II and, uh, and Pope Benedict XVI, men of great uh, doctrinal depth and um, poets, or at least great appreciators of, of beauty. Uh, which is all to say, uh, we need to have both of these things uh, in order for us really to be, to be living in, in, a, in a truly Catholic way, have an appreciation for both and really striving to grasp th things in their doctrinal depth and also to, to appreciate the poetry and to give expression to it as well. So before we get into the text itself, just some words about the origins of the hymn. Uh, and the origins of it are wrapped up with the origins of today's feast of Corpus Christi, which really should have been last Thursday's feast of Corpus Christi, okay? Because that's the day that our Lord said he wanted it to be on. We move feasts around now. Um, uh, Juliana of Liege, uh, a canonist in Belgium in, in the early 13th century is the start of this feast. She repeatedly had a vision or a dream in which she saw this, this, this brilliant moon with like a dark spot in, in one area of it. And she was made to understand that, that the moon is sort of represents the church's year, the church's feasts and festivals. And that dark spot or lacuna was the absence of a feast that's dedicated entirely to, to the Eucharist, to our Lord's presence uh, among us uh, under the form of bread and wine. And in her life, she tried to get the feast established. Um, and she died in vain, or so she thought. About 11 years after she died, uh, a priest, uh, Peter of Prague, was making a pilgrimage to Rome, stopped in the town of Bolsena, Italy. And, uh, well, he had some difficulties with the doctrine of the Eucharist. He didn't outright disbelieve it, just had some difficulties with it. And as he's offering mass, 
the words of consecration, which, according to our doctrine, is the moment at which there's no longer bread, uh, no longer wine, but just the body and the blood of our Lord. At that moment, the host began to bleed, which we presume settled his doubts and difficulties, right? <laughs> and it's also a lesson to us, by the way, because um, we hear about these Eucharistic miracles and we think they're amazing. I don't know of any Eucharistic miracle that is the product of devotion. They're all, they all come about because of a lack of devotion. <laughs> and uh, somebody who disbelieves, or, or, or worse, uh, tries something sacrilegious with the host. Uh, so let's not hope for Eucharistic miracles, because it sort of indicts us if we get them, right? <laughs> so what does the priest do? Here's the host bleeding. Well, he interrupts Mass, uh, as Providence would have it. The, uh, the Pope, Pope Urban IV, was in the nearby town of Orvieto. And so this priest went to speak with the Pope and, um, and sort of come clean about you know, his difficulties and what happened and everything. And the Pope commanded that the corporal from, from the altar be brought to Orvieto, where you can go uh, today uh, and, and see that corporal bloodstained uh, from, uh, from the 13th century. One year later, the Pope instituted, in light of this event, he instituted the Feast of Corpus Christi. But it wasn't only in light of that event of the Eucharistic miracle, because that Pope actually had been an archdeacon, where? In Liege, where Juliana uh, lived, and he had heard already about this vision that she experienced and this desire of our Lord expressed through her that the Feast of Corpus Christi be established. Uh, convenient that he then became pope, right? Uh, and so he established this feast in 1264, and um, of course, St. Thomas Aquinas still being around, uh, turned to the, the greatest theologian, who also happened to be a great poet, uh, and asked him to compose the office for the feast, uh, which means uh, the hymns for the breviary and all the propers for the mass uh, that we uh, have had for centuries for this feast. And it is uh, from, the, from the office that we take this hymn. And it was for that that St. Thomas uh, composed it. Um, the last two stanzas of it, if you look at your sheet, are familiar to us. Uh, because it's the Tomptum Ergo that we, um, that we sing every time there's Eucharistic benediction. Uh, the entire hymn is used uh, usually on Holy Thursday for the procession. And in many places today, um, on Corpus Christi, when there's you know, the procession after Mass. As you're looking at the hymn, let me just make some observations about its uh, composition and structure. It is six stanzas, six lines in each, an alternating uh, rhyming system, A, B, A, B, A, B for each stanza. The first words of it are actually stolen. Okay, not stolen, that's a strong word to use. Okay, but St. Thomas took them from somewhere else. Um, uh, some of you might be familiar with the hymn, Pange Lingua Gloriosi Prelium Certaminis, um, which is a hymn in honor of the Holy Cross that was compo composed 
um, in the sixth century. And it's still sung during, uh, during Holy Week, I think um, on Good Friday especially. And, uh, and so it would have been familiar to, to people. And, and the music, St. Thomas just took the music for it as well and just wove it in. And so what he did, what he did is he took a familiar melody to everybody and he put new words to it, uh, which is very crafty because we know the power of a familiar song, right? When you get a song in your head, <laughs> we know the power of it, and he understood that as well. And so, to convey this this profound theology, he took this familiar hymn, uh, used his own words, and composed a masterpiece of Eucharistic catechesis. And so, if you again looking at the uh, at the the hymn itself. What I'd like to do in going through it and explaining it and just kind of reflecting on uh, the beauty of it and uh, the, the beauty of the composition, but also the doctrine um, and the beauty of the doctrine, I'm going to divide it this way. The first stanza is really sort of an introduction. Think of it as an overture in a, in a, in a great symphony or an opera. The next two stanzas, two and three, are sort of a historical survey of our Lord's life. It's, it's the gospel in miniature. The fourth stanza is just good, meaty doctrine, which is beautifully, beautifully phrased. And um, I have to say, so I, I studied Latin and Greek in college, and people would say to me, what are you going to do with that? Okay, well, um, as, as it happens, uh, <laughs> in a profession in which it's actually immediately useful. Uh, so I'm, uh, but I'm, I'm thankful for, for uh, Deacon Sabatino asking me to, to reflect on this with you because uh, just appreciating this beautiful Latin of St. Thomas and the poetry of it, um, and I hope to, to bring that out for you as well. And then the last two verses uh, we'll touch on briefly. Uh, those are the ones with which we are most familiar, um, but... That doesn't mean we know them the best, does it? <laughs> so let's turn to the overture or the introduction there. Pange lingua gloriosi, corporis mysterium, sanguinisque preziosi, quem in mundi prezium, fructus ventris generosi, rex effudit gentium. Notice uh, the comma after pange. Okay. Pange is a command. Sing. But if you have any Latin, pange evokes already panis, panem, bread. And so just there, he kind of puts that in your mind from the get-go. But um, so as an overture, this, this first stanza has everything that, we should, that we're going to find in the rest of the hymn. Just as an overture has, you know, contains everything in, in the entire uh, work, the entire composition. So first there's the invitation to prayer, or actually technically a, a command to prayer. Pange lingua gloriosi. Sing, O tongue. Sing, O tongue. And so it's a, it's a command to the tongue to be freed and, and to sing, which has gospel connotations, doesn't it? Because uh, we hear our Lord healing those with speech impediment, right? His tongue is freed. Or think of Zechariah, right? When his tongue is freed and he can speak and praise God. What's the purpose of us having a tongue in order to speak? It's so that we can praise God. Pange lingua. Uh, sing, O tongue, 
And then the next, uh, um, the next point that it, it, it brings up, sort of gives us a preview to, is of course the purpose of the entire hymn, the body and the blood of our Lord. And notice how uh, Thomas structures it. Corporis mysterium sanguinisque pre uh, preziosi. One of the beautiful things about Latin is you can, you can um, tinker with the word order to a great degree. And Thomas puts those two words at the very beginning of the line, corporis sanguinis. And so right there at the beginning, uh, he puts in our mind body and blood. And that's the purpose of this entire hymn. And then in the next line, a mention of sacrifice. Quem in mundi pretium. Um, uh, the, the price uh, that came as, as the price of the world, the sacrifice. He offered his, his life as a price, as, an, uh, as a ransom for us. So the body and blood of our Lord is not just a meal, but it is also a sacrifice. And St. Thomas is communicating that already. The next line is a mention of Our Lady. Fructus ventris generosi. Fruit uh, generosi don't fall into false cognates, right? The, slave, the, the lazy translating, oh, it looks like generous. It must be generous, okay? Uh, fruit of the noble womb, okay? He doesn't mention her by name, but it's a reference to Our Lady. Uh, this is significant, and in the next, in the next uh, stanza, Our Lady is mentioned immediately. My dear friends, devotion to Our Lady and devotion to the Eucharist are not only not opposed to each other, but they must go together. They must. Uh, the Ave Verum Corpus is another great uh, Eucharistic hymn. Ave Verum Corpus Natum Dei Maria Virgine. Hail, true body, truly born of the Virgin Mary. Uh, the one we worship in the Eucharist is born of Mary. Uh, we always have to regard her as mother of the Eucharist. Uh, the body that, he, that he's offered, us on the, uh, offered for us on the cross and offered to us in the Eucharist is the same body that Our Lady adored uh, in Bethlehem. And so this mention of her uh, at the beginning and then in the next stanza as well brings out the unity uh, of these two devotions. And really you can't have one without the other. Our, the mention of Our Lady kind of preserves this sense that Yes, the body we worship and receive is that same body born from her, not some other version. Uh, and so Paul VI uh, wrote that Mary is intrinsic to Christian worship, intrinsic, unable to be separated from, intrinsic. She's not really important to Christian worship. She's not even really, really important. She's intrinsic to Christian worship. If we remo remove Mary, now we're not going to understand our Lord as well. And just think of all those nativity scenes, you know, when you get your Christmas cards, uh, especially the Northern Renaissance depictions of uh, our Lord, you know, lying there uh, on a cloth sometimes, which looks like the corporal of, of an altar, or on a sheaf of wheat, uh, and Mary is there adoring her child, and there are angels there, and very often the angels are vested. 
uh, it has always been the instinct of the church to connect these two. And notice how this stanza puts before us, at, oh, practically immediately, the mystery. Pange lingua gloriosi, corporis mysterium. What are we singing? What are we commanding the tongue to sing? Sing the mystery. Sing the mystery. Um, Deacon Sabatino mentioned that uh, Dr. Alice von, von Hildebrand was here, and she has such l lovely reflections on mystery. And she makes the great point that for us, um, we, we don't speak of problems, we speak of mysteries. Problems are things you solve. Mysteries are things that you, that you reverence. Uh, and in this case, the mystery is something that we praise and celebrate and extol. Uh, and again, this brings out the unity of doctrine and poetry, of dogma and beauty, uh, because it's essential for a theologian to reverence the mystery. If he tries to solve it, he breaks it. And that's what every heresy is. Every heresy is a breaking of, the, of one of the mysteries of faith. The Incarnation, the Eucharist, uh, the Virgin Mother, whatever else it might be. Every heresy is trying to solve one of the mysteries of faith instead of revering it. And poetry, of course, loves mystery, loves to, to, to speak words around it and, uh, and never get quite straight to it because it is something to be extolled, not solved. And so theology without, without that reverence for a mystery becomes rationalism. And uh, poetry, without that reverence for mysteries, uh, we call that prose, not poetry. So that is the overture. And look, and look at the way, um, just a little bit of the structure there. I, I mentioned the uh, pange, which really kind of to the ear evokes already pan, panis, uh, bread. And then pange corporis sanguinis, right there in a row. And then the way he lines up preziosi and prezium, because that precious blood is the price of our salvation. Um, so with that overview in mind, now to the next, to the next stanza, which is, um, let's divide it into three parts, okay? Uh, just um, lines one and two, and then three and four, and then five and six. It's wonderfully structured and brings out for us the beauty of our faith. And what Thomas is doing here is giving us the gospel in miniature in these next two stanzas. There's first the command to sing of this mystery. Now he's going to explain the one about whom we are singing and what he has accomplished. Nobis natus, nobis, nobis datus, nobis natus, ex intacta virgine. There's Mary again given to us, born to us, of the, the intact virgin, the untouched virgin. Um, it is a truth about him that we can't think about enough. He is born for us. He is given to us. What a beautiful thing. And, and, that, and that, that word there, nobis, means for us. Nobis, nobis. This truth that God in his goodness has given himself to us. What other faith boasts this? What other faith can claim such a God? 
He's not giving us just commands, instructions. He's giving himself to us. He's born for us. He is given to us. And then again, of the untouched virgin, uh, there again is Our Lady, immediately, always with our Lord, always with our Eucharistic Lord. And so those two lines prepare us to understand the Eucharist as that gift for us. What, what great intimacy. And, but having said that, you know, it's worth, think, it's worth realizing also, why does our Lord give us the Eucharist? It is for us. It's for our nourishment when, when, we, when we're weak. It's for our consolation when, when we're struggling and we can come by the church here and just, and he's there. And we can be consoled by him. We can be nourished by him at Mass. Uh, and so he is for us in that way. But he also gave us the Eucharist because he wanted to be with us. Which is amazing because we don't always want to be with one another, right? <laughs> God takes delight in his people, it says in the Psalms. God takes delight in his people. Uh, we don't believe that. We fall into the trap of thinking he's sort of begrudgingly there. <laughs> okay, I'll be there in the tabernacle, you know. <laughs> but I'm not happy about it, right? <laughs> um, I've given myself to you, but I'm not happy about it. No, he delights to be with us. This is for us because we need salvation, but it is also for him because it answers the desires of his sacred heart to be present to us to give himself to us, because he is a lover, and that's what love desires. The next two lines talk about his public ministry, very briefly. Et in mundo, et in mundo conversatus. So literally, conversing in the world. It's kind of like a, kind of a homey sort of way of understanding our Lord's public ministry. Just kind of walking around conversing in the world. Okay, he's preaching. He is... Um, Exercises public ministry that way. Sparso verbi semini, the seed of the word having been scattered, literally, slavishly, literally. Professors would kill me if I, they heard me say that. Um, but the, the seed of the word, farmer would, would, would hesitate. You know what, what farmer would say? Well, you know, a lot of this isn't even going to take, so what's the point? No, a farmer has to say, well, I, we will do what we can here. And so our Lord comes and he scatters the seed of the word um, generously. And he knows of not, that a lot of it won't take, but that doesn't stop him. Um, Sui moras incolatus miro clausit ordine. And this is a very uh, difficult couple lines to, to translate. I would say the sojourns of his dwelling um, he brought to a wondrous end. So the sojourns of his dwelling, he was dwelling with us here, he sojourned with us during that, that time of his dwelling on earth, and he brought all of that time with us, those 33 years, he brought it to a wondrous close, miro ordine, a wondrous close to, uh, to all of that, or, or he closed it rather in a wonderful order, miro ordine. Um, and what this does is it sets up the next stanza because our Lord's public life concludes 
but he concludes it properly and wondrously. He doesn't just say, okay, well, uh, that, that's, that's it, I'm done. Any questions? No. <laughs> he, he brings it to a close that is wondrous and it is fit for his entire mission. Uh, and that's a wonderful way of, of understanding the Eucharist, is the, the Eucharist is the way our Lord closes out his public life so as to continue his public life. That's the purpose of it. Um, and it's not an easy thing to do, by the way. Um, years ago, I remember speaking to, to Bishop uh, Keating. Uh, I was ordained just a year and a half before he died. And uh, one of the few conversations I had with him, he said, um, you know, he asked me about my preaching. He says, you know, how do you find preaching? And we had a discussion about that. He said, I've always found it the most difficult thing is to, to conclude a homily. And I'm sure you guys can, you know, I mean, have, <laughs> right, right. But um, he said, I've always found this the most difficult thing. And it was, it was an interesting conversation. <laughs> I was reminded of that years ago, uh, Deacon Sabatino gave me instructions before I got to talk. He says, and don't, and don't forget to finish. <laughs> By which she meant to bring it to a close, right? It's not always an easy thing to do. Um, in our Lord's public life, everything is summarized and closed. It is closed in a wondrous way by the Eucharist. And so that brings us to the next stanza, which is all about the Last Supper. And so stanza two is really just cutting through his birth and his public life very quickly. Stanza three is about the Last Supper. In suprime nocte cene, recumbens cum fratribus, observata lege plene, cibus in legalibus, cibum turbe duodene, sedat suis manibus. In suprime nocte cene, in the night of the Last Supper, in the evening of the Last Supper, recumbens cum fratribus, reclining with his friends, or rather with his brothers. Notice that intimacy. With, with his brothers, um, which in fact he doesn't, um, he doesn't call them that at the Last Supper. He, 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 he makes us that, but at the Last Supper he calls them friends, um, uh, even little children. But Thomas is taking it one step further, brothers. Observata lege plani cibus in legalibus. So the, the, the law being completely observed um, for in um, the food legalities, let's put it that way, the food legalities. Um, in other words, he fulfills entirely the law of ancient Israel, especially as regards the Passover. Uh, now that is a double implication, doesn't it? He, he, he observes it, meaning he, he's obedient to it. He makes himself obedient to the very nation that he formed, to the very laws that he promulgated. But then also he fulfills them because the Passover supper was, was, that was pointing to the Eucharist. That was the purpose of it. It realizes its fullness only when our Lord takes the bread in his hands at the Last Supper and transforms that meal into the Mass. Every sacrifice in ancient Israel led up to the Mass. And St. Thomas, of course, <laughs> it's just a couple lines here, but in the Summa he has many chapters, many questions devoted to just this point, that all of the sacrifices of ancient Israel, in fact, all of the rites and ceremonies 
find their full fulfillment in the sacrifice of our Lord on the cross and therefore in the sacrifice of the Mass, in the Eucharist. And then it says, Cibum turbe duodene, so sedat suis manibus. With his own hands, he gives himself to the crowd of 12, or to the, to the 12 crowd, perhaps you could say. Um, now, this is a fascinating line here. First of all, that word turbe. Uh, Torba in, in Latin is crowd. And that is how John describes the Jews in John chapter 6. The ones in Capernaum who don't accept our Lord's teaching on the Eucharist. He begins that section, uh, and the Latin there is Torba. So the crowd back then that did not accept, the Torba back then that did not accept the teaching, our Lord at the Last Supper has this crowd of 12 that accept the teaching. Uh, and this, of course, is what we hear at the end of John chapter 6, right? Many turn away, no longer follow our Lord. After this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. Jesus said to the 12, maybe we could hear the crowd of 12, do you also wish to go away? And of course, Peter responds, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And so now at the Last Supper, this is the new Israel right here. The ones that are entrusted to him, this crowd of 12. And he is giving himself to them as food with his own hands. Suis manibus. Um, that's amazing. He's sort of handing himself over, isn't he? And uh, think of the setting of this. This is the Last Supper, the, day before, the, the, the night of his betrayal, the day before his execution. He is handing himself over as nourishment and food before he hands himself over for sacrifice. And so it brings to mind again how uh, the Eucharist is food and sacrifice are really the same thing. Our Lord hands himself over as food at the Last Supper, and on Good Friday, he hands himself over to be crucified because these are really one thing, the meal of the Eucharist and the sacrifice of the Mass. The next stanza is really just wonderful poetic theology. And the first two lines are tour de force. Verbum caro panem verum, verbum caro carnem efficit, which is just kind of fun to recite. Um, and he's picking up on a lot of phrases here. Uh, and notice the, the first word in each line, verbum, verbo, verbo, caro, carnem. So you go from verbum, caro, verbo, carnem. Um, and for the Latinists there, you go accusative to nominative. Uh, well, I guess nominative, nominative, and then. Uh, so it's, it's a fun line. And then, of course, you have verum, which is evocative of verbum. What does it mean? Verbum caro. What do you think of when you hear ver verbum caro? Those of you who go to the traditional mass, I'm not going to call on, on, on seminarian. <laughs> okay, yes, go ahead, seminarian. <laughs> verbum caro factum est. Uh, at habitavit in obis. It is, um, it is from the prologue of John's gospel. 
that used to be read at the, it was called the last gospel because it was read at the end of every mass. Verbum caro factum est et habitavit nobis. We say it in the Angelus. Um, and so those first two words, verbum caro, boom, right here. And so people who are familiar with that, um, with verbum caro, they're thinking in mind, factum est, the word made flesh. Uh, so the word make, makes flesh by a word makes flesh true bread. By a word. That is, that's it. It is by the word in this, okay, capital W, right? Okay. So by the word, uh, by the power of Jesus Christ that is conferred on priests throughout history. So in that sense, by the power of that word, uh, bread is made flesh. But also by the power of the word small w, or small v, if it's in Latin, right? Um, by the power of the word small w, the priest makes this bread flesh. It is the speaking of the words, the words of consecration that effect transubstantiation. That the bread maintaining all of the properties of bread becomes in itself the, the body of Christ. Uh, that is our theology in, in shorthand. That is precisely what we believe in those two lines. Fitque sanguis Christi merum. And so the, the, the wine um, uh, bec uh, becomes the, bread, the blood of Christ. Now, a little, little catechesis here. Um, it is accurate to say that uh, the host becomes the body of Christ and the wine becomes the blood of Christ, right? But that does not mean that if you receive the host, you're only receiving the body. If you only receive the body, what are you? You are a cannibal, okay? The reason we're not cannibals is because cannibals eat pieces of dead people. The Eucharist is not a dead person. It is the living Lord, uh, more alive than anyone in this room. And we do not receive pieces of our Lord. We receive him fully. He is fully present in every host and every part of the host, which is why, for example, yesterday at the cathedral during ordinations, when I was distributing communion and I had to break the host in half because I thought we were running out, I didn't then say to the next person, half of the body of Christ. <laughs> no, no. He is present in every host, in every particle of, the, of every host. He is present body, blood, soul, and divinity. So if you receive the host, you receive likewise his blood, uh, soul, and divinity. And if you receive just the precious blood, you're receiving likewise his body, soul, and divinity. Et si sensus deficit ad firmandum cors in cerum sola fide sufficit. And if, and if the sense is deficient, in other words, if we can't grasp it, faith alone suffices. All you need is faith. Faith alone suffices ad firmandum cors in cerum for the 
the confirming or the, the strengthening um, of the heart. It could, yeah, it's interesting. It could be the, the strengthening of, of the sincere heart or the sincere strengthening uh, the heart. Um, either way, um, faith is what, what enables us to enter into the mystery. We're not going to figure this out on our own. We're not going to solve this mystery. We have to revere it. And um, you know, Saint Elizabeth Ann Seton, uh, you know, she was for real. Okay, I'm sorry, but I mean, she's one of those saints that the the, the sort of the popular depictions. I'm afraid have done her a disservice because they just make her out to be. She's kind of okay. She's a school marm. Uh, she had a very intense, intense devotion to the Eucharist. When she was first told about the Eucharist by some uh, Catholic friends, she wept, uh, wept in, in just, in, just in joy of that, that God would, would be so generous. Um, and in some of her writings, she says, it is so simple. It is so simple. He said that he would be present to us in that way. We simply have to believe him, take him at his word. It is that simplicity of faith that is necessary for Eucharistic devotion, which is why the simplest peasant uh, can have greater access to the Eucharist than the most clever theologian who lacks faith. Faith is what gives us access. We want to try to understand it as much as we can, not in order to solve things, but in order to grow in appreciation for it and and what we discover with these mysteries is the more we know about it, the more we realize we don't know. And so the more we need faith. Faith is our entrance. Sola fide sufficit. Faith alone suffices. It is very funny, by the way, to see the term sola fides uh, showing up in an uber-Catholic hymn, right? Sola fide is usually a term we hear only among Lutherans, right? So. So with all of that, now you can kind of understand these last two stanzas better. Tantum ergo sacramentum. Um, the ergo, uh, most people have any knowledge of Latin know ergo means therefore. But usually we just see these two stanzas standing on their own, right? And so you're thinking, well, what's the therefore refer to? The, ver the therefore refers to the four preceding stanzas. Given everything that's been said, therefore, because he is born of the noble uh, womb, because he is given to us, born for us of the untouched version, because he closed out his life here in a wondrous way, because he reclined with his friends at the Last Supper and gave himself to them as food with his own hands, uh, because by his word he changes uh, bread into flesh, because of all of these things and because faith alone gets us access, therefore, tantum ergo sacramentum venerare cernui, um, therefore, let us venerate so great a sacrament, cernui, bowing low. In fact, I don't know if it's a rubric or it may, it may be in... in um, uh, uh, in the, old, in the um, extraordinary form, but it is certainly a custom uh, at Chernui that the, the ministers, uh, when they're 
at, at benediction, bow low at the word chernui because it says bowing low. And so they do that. Um, the word sacramentum is the Latin for mysterion, uh, which is, of course, mystery. Um, therefore, let us revere so great a mystery, bowing low. I mean, have in mind bowing down your forehead and touching the ground with your forehead. Um, and also notice how all of the preceding doctrine leads to an act of worship. It doesn't lead to witty banter and conversation. <laughs> you know, every so often, and I'm sure other priests in the room have, have experienced this, somebody will come up to, 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 to priest after mass Say, thank you, Father. That was an interesting, interesting homily. Okay. Now, that could mean I didn't follow you. Um, um, it could mean you weren't clear. But a lot of times it means I am thinking about what you said, but I'm not accepting it in faith. And I'm not celebrating the truth that you conveyed. I mean, it's happened to me a number of times that I, I just, well, what do you mean interesting? That's doctrine. It's saving doctrine. It is something not just say, I don't know, that's interesting. I'm going to go home and think about that. No, it's something that we, we go home and pray about. It is something we revere and celebrate. Et antiquum documentum nova, novo cedat ritui. And, and, and may the um, ancient uh, rituals, let's say, uh, give way to the new rite. Again, St. Thomas making the point that everything that went before, all of the old uh, ceremonies and liturgies and rituals, they all give way to the Eucharist. They all give way. And let's extend that a little further. Because man is a creature who is created to worship. We are created for worship. That is the purpose of our creation, to worship. Which means we will worship. And we will, we will do it either rightly or wrongly. We will either worship in a, in a true manner or we'll invent worships that are not only wrong, but eventually diabolical. All worship ultimately desires the Eucharist, ultimately desires the one sacrifice that redeems us, that reconciles us to the Father, and the one sacrifice that nourishes us. All worship desires that unwittingly. Prest et fide supplementum sensum defectui. And uh, the commentators here point out that sensum is being used in the sense of, in, the, in terms of the physical senses. So um, may faith uh, provide the supplement to the senses defect. Because with our, with our eyes, with our hands, with our mouths, we cannot grasp the truth of this because it is beyond, beyond those, those senses. So may, may faith provide um, the supplement, what, what is necessary there. And the final stanza, simply put, is a long version of the Gloria Patri. And so it is customary at the end of the Psalms to pray glory to the Father and to the Son and the Holy Spirit it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Um, especially in the extraordinary form of the Mass, at many points there is the, 
the Gloria Pace, Gloria Pace, Filio Spiritu Santo. These six lines are just a fancy version of the same thing. Genitori genitoque lauset jubilatio, salus honor virtus quoque citet benedictio. To the generator and to the generated. Um, in other words, to the father who generates and to the son who is generated. Laus et jubilatio, so um, uh, honor and joy, uh, salvation, honor again, another word for it, power and also blessings be. And so there's uh, basically saying glory to the Father and to the Son, and then the next three lines, complete it. Procedenti abu troque, to the one who proceeds from both, who is the Holy Spirit. To the one who proceeds from both, may there be equal praise. Amen. Alleluia. And so that, in fitting manner, uh, concludes, and it's a common trope in, in Latin um, hymnody and chant that the last stanza uh, is a uh, doxology. It is just praise of the Trinity. But in this context, what it calls to mind is that um, the Eucharist is a praise of the Trinity because it is the Holy Spirit making present the Son's offering to the Father. Through him, with him, and in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory and honor is yours. Well, I just messed up. What's the new translation? <laughs> okay. Per ipsum et cum ipsum. Anyway. So uh, that is what the Mass is. That is what the Eucharist is. It is through, with, and in him, in Christ. Through, with, and in Christ, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, glory and honor to the Father. And that is fittingly um, how this, this hymn ends as well. And since I mentioned it at the beginning, I will now make a fitting end uh, to this talk. Thank you. Now we are going to stand and we are going to sing. And hopefully I have... I pray that my words have inspired you, if not to sing well, <laughs> at least to sing devoutly and with greater affection, um, greater devotion. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Ange lingua gloriosi. Corporis mysterium, sanguinisque preciosi, quem in mundi preciosum, fructum ventris generosi, rexe fudigentium. Nobis natus, nobis datus, et intacta virgine, et in mundo conversatus, spasso verbis amine, sui moras incolatus, 
miro clausito dine. In supreme nocte cene, recumbent cum fratribus, observata lege plene, cibus in legalibus, cibum tube duel dene, Sedat suis manibus, verbum caro parem verum, verbo carem verficit, fitque sanguis Christi merum, et si sensus Ad fiamandum corsencerum, sola fide sufficit. Tantum ergo sacramentum, venere nos enumi. Dantique vantumentum, Provocetat rituii, prestet fides supplementum, sensum defectui. Genitori, genitoque, laus et jubilatio. Salus honor virtus quoque, sit et benedictio, procedenti abutroque, comparsit laudatio. You said that the Pange Lingua was, in effect, commissioned by the Pope for the feast. Yet at this morning's Mass, in the extraordinary form, the sequence was Lauda Sion. Well, this is a different, um, Lauda Sion is, 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 the, is the sequence that, was, that uh, the saint penned, um, or quilled, for, um, for the feast. Pange Lingua was not part of the Mass, it was part of the Divine Office. And still today, it's, it's the hymn for Vespers. And, um, uh, and it was also at times accompanied, I don't have the text with me, um, by the, that, that great Dominican uh, Thomistic um, summary of the Eucharist as, as an antiphon. So it was never part of the Mass. It was part of the Divine Office. I think mainly Vespers, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And, and, and also um, uh, processions, as I, as I mentioned. So Holy Thursday, it's used for that. We have beautiful Latin here from St. Thomas. This is beautiful English, too. Do we know anything about who did the translations on this? Um, I don't know. Um, uh, actually, this is not, this is not really the, the most beautiful English. You, could, you can find better uh, online. I just, I, this is the more literal translation of the, of the Latin. Yeah. Um, and by the way, uh, when Deacon Sabatino asked me to give this talk, 
I immediately thought Lauda Zeon. I said, oh yeah, I'll do the sequence. Yeah, the sequence for Corpus Christi, that'd be great. <laughs> and I'm like, oops, it's not the sequence. So the sequence is much longer and theologically much, much richer. But we'd be here for hours. Okay. Why is sometimes um, the Eucharist and the cup of wine offered separately if uh, each is the full body and blood of Christ? I think that that is mainly logistical, okay? But there, there is also significance to, um, and, and it's actually not always received separately, so you can receive by intinction. Correct me if I'm wrong, in the East, they are received as one. Okay, in the West, a different uh, custom uh, uh, came, came to be, and, uh, and that's really exclusively the host. In, in the vast majority of the Latin church's history, it's, uh, we've, it's, a, it's just been receiving the, the host. A lot of that is just logistics, that it's, it's hard to have that many chalices and to distribute that uh, both reverently and efficiently, because we have parking lots <laughs> that, that, that need, need, need to be uh, cleared between masses. Um, uh, the, the fuller symbol, the fuller symbol is to receive both, okay? Um, which, let, let me digress, if you don't mind. Um, the Eucharist is a symbol. <laughs> Scared now, aren't you? <laughs> it's just not only a symbol. Um, Abbot Vanier, um, Emmaus Books, I think, puts out his, his um, republishes his work. He was an abbot in England in the early 20th century. He's got uh, a, a, a very good book called The Doctrine of the Eucharist. And, and in a section in there, he talks about how there's somewhat of an overcompensation um, uh, that makes us forget about the symbolism of the Eucharist that because we are so intent of saying it is the real presence of Christ, we forget that there, there's a reason he came to us under the form of bread and wine. So, I mean, bread is a, is a very basic nourishment, isn't it? Because this is essential to our lives. We're starving. We need bread. You don't give starving people something luxurious. You give them uh, what, what is most fundamental. And wine, of course, signifies joy. Uh, in our Lord's culture as much as in ours. So um, that's just, you know, for starters, um, something, the significance of, of the bread and the wine. So they, they do maintain their symbol value, and receiving both the host and, and the precious blood would be a fuller sign of, of receiving uh, our Lord, but it is not essential. Father, we have a question coming in online from Anne-Marie uh, Anne McNew from Texas asking, um, I'm going to modify our question slightly, but uh, what are some other examples of great theological poetry in the church, and where would you rank this in relationship to those? Well, I'm not, I, I, first I don't think I'm fit to do the ranking, but, um, uh, you know, the Roman breviary is, is, is full of, of such, um, I mean, beautiful works. Um, the Lauda Zion, the uh, uh, veni Sancti Spiritus, Veni Caradra Spiritus. The, these, these are beautiful uh, and theologically rich works. Uh, the Pangilingo really stands out as, as, as one of the best. But um, if you pick up the, especially the extraordinary form, the Roman breviary, I mean, it, it is just full of, of some really profoundly moving and theologically rich hymns. Um, the, uh, the sequence for Easter, 
is, is another one. Um, um, so, but this is, is commonly regarded as, as one, of the, one of the greatest. Father, thank you for your talk. Um, coming from a Protestant background where it's talked about personal relationship with Jesus all the time, how might you help someone with that understanding introducing them to the Eucharist? Great question. Uh, and, and it's worth pointing out that um, we share this with, with, with uh, Protestants, don't we? That, that fundamental, central to our faith is that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That is sine qua non. Um, if we, you can't really be Catholic and not have that. The difference is we see the church as intrinsic to that, that you cannot separate Christ from the church. To have a personal relationship with him means necessarily uh, also to be united with him by way of the church. Um, and a, a, lot of, a lot of times people see the church as an obstacle, and sometimes you can understand why. But, um, uh, but that's, the, that's the essential commonality, but also difference. Um, we want to know the person of Jesus Christ. This is one of St. Paul's greatest lines in Philippians, and it just, it, it kind of bursts out from him. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And how do we know him? We, we know him by, by you know, encountering him in the Gospels, first of all, right? And, and obeying what he said, believing what he said. And what's fascinating is in the Gospels, this is the only thing he commands us to do in his memory. The only thing. He does not say feed the poor in his memory. We should feed the poor, right? <laughs> um, he, uh, he doesn't say love one another uh, in memory of me. But, but this devotion to his person, that personal relationship, should prompt us to, to want to do what he said is a memorial, a living a living memory of him. So that, I think that's one thing. Um, and the other is, uh, or the second would be, uh, as Abbot Don Marmion says, in order to know Christ, you cannot separate him from his mystical body. We come to know Christ through the church. And the church highlights this sacrament as, uh, as the place where we encounter our Lord um, most fully this side of heaven. And third, um, proceeding from that second point, you don't get much more personal than the union of body and soul. I mean, that is really, and you know, a lot of guys have quipped about it. Uh, I think it deserves more than a quip, you know, that, that um, not only have I received my Lord, my, Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior, but I've also received him on my tongue and, you know, down my throat and into my tummy. Um, well, we, we should make the point that, that communion is this personal encounter with Christ. Uh, and that is where we really do um, come to know him personally and cultivate that personal relationship with him. Um, a, a friend of mine is, making, is fond of making this, this observation. You know, the, the natural um, analogy for the reception of the Eucharist is um, the conjugal embrace of marriage. That's why our Lord is referred to as the bridegroom of the soul. That's why the Baldacchino, St. Peter's Basilica, is reminiscent of the canopy of a wedding bed. Uh, there's profound nuptial imagery uh, in the Eucharist. Uh, in marriage, two persons become one flesh, right? 
it's tough work. Because <laughs> you have two people trying to, you know, getting in the way of trying to be united, trying to be one. In the Eucharist, <laughs> there's only one person getting in the way, right? <laughs> and that's you and me. Uh, our Lord gives himself perfectly to us uh, in order for us to know him uh, as profoundly as he desires to be known, uh, then we need to, low, you know, to, to rid ourselves of all those obstacles and difficulties uh, that get in the way of that one flesh union with him. I'll close with a blessing. The Lord be with you. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.